Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you've had a cracking start to the week. I certainly did. I went for a little walk with my man Baxter and we came across a carpet python, a monster one at that, and I love it. This is one of the many reasons I love Brisbane and indeed Straya. I've never seen so many snakes as I have in Australia and I like absolutely love it. For some people they hate it, but I dig it, man. Anyway, what's happening in Bitcoin? Well, I think quite a bit. There's some fights here and there, as always. But, you know, if you zoom out, I think things are looking pretty rosy. And I'm bullish AF, I must say. So we're sitting at roughly a trillion dollar market cap, give or take. But if you look at what it was like two years ago compared to today, it's chalk and cheese, right? So today we've got the ETS. We've got large chunks of sticky money, not sort of degenerate folks playing with JPEGs and leverage, etc. We've got the Fed now saying that they're actually looking to potentially ease interest rates compared to the Fed two years ago saying they were looking to tighten. And if you look at the level of retail interest today versus two years ago, you can't compare. Two years ago, people were going mad. They were speculating on anything and everything. But today, retail is half asleep. They don't care. Search volumes on Bitcoin are rock bottom. And if you look at Coinbase's data, it's 85% less trading today than it was two years ago. So I think that we're just getting started in this bull market. But then again, you know, anything can happen in Bitcoin. But for the time being, I'm enormously bullish. All right. So that said, today's guest is Anil Patel. Anil is an educator and author in the Bitcoin space. He's written a wonderful book called The Bitcoin Handbook. Key Concepts in Economics, Technology, and Psychology, a book that I highly recommend experienced as well as inexperienced Bitcoiners grab because it's very easy to digest. Neil has a wonderful way of explaining complex topics in very simple terms. He uses illustrations, and I have to say, he's also one of the most humble, softly spoken, understated guys in this space. There's so many different characters and it's really refreshing to talk to somebody as humble and down to earth as Anil. In this particular conversation, we got into everything from Bitcoin as pristine collateral, Gresham's law, the Cantillon effect, what is meant by a monetary premium, what is Bitcoin backed by, intransigent minorities, the Gelman amnesia effect, and much more. Overall, had an absolute blast chatting to Anil and hope to meet him someday in person. Otherwise, Hope you enjoyed the show and let me know what you think. Cheers. Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There is no second best crypto asset. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. I'm your host, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it completely different to all other cryptocurrencies. If you're interested in Bitcoin and you'd like to distill crypto fact from fiction, You've come to the right place. All right, ladies and gentlemen, very pleased to introduce my next guest, Mr. Anil Patel. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dale. Really excited to uh, cover some ground. Yes, absolutely. And you know what, Anil, um, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a little while. Just before I went uh, on my trip to the bush in South Africa, we were in touch with each other and um, got got an opportunity to read through your book, which um, 
one of the fellas here in Australia had gifted me after an interview with him, The Wizard of Oz. So shout out to uh, to The Wizard of Oz. Really enjoy a the very, book. Uh, yeah, do you know, yeah, do you no, know Wiz, The Wiz? He's a very wise and generous man. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Indeed. Very, very lovely guy. Super. Okay, indeed. I agree wholeheartedly. And so, yeah, in addition to your um, conversation with Preston Pish, which I found really interesting, I thought perhaps I can try and introduce a different angle because Preston's the man of what he does and I think he touched on a lot of those sort of heuristics those psychological heuristics and perhaps what we can do today and you know in terms of the ground I'm looking to cover is let's call it happenings of the day um, what's happening in the world of Bitcoin today as we speak and then we can sort of layer in some of the concepts you talk about in your book the Bitcoin handbook which for anyone listening or watching highly recommended it's particularly interesting for those who are just beginning their journey because it's very clear that you've drawn from essentially the heavy hitters in Bitcoin from the Lynn Aldens to the VJ Boy of parties of the world. And I really love the way you tied it all together. So I guess just out the blocks, if you wouldn't mind for those of you, uh, for those um, who don't necessarily know who you are, wouldn't you just give us like a little bit of a background and how you found your way into the wonderful world of Bitcoin? Yeah, I'm no one special, very much just a pleb that maybe has a bit of a head start in terms of time on a number of Bitcoiners just because of the city that I moved to in Canada happened to have a very well-established Bitcoin scene, I guess, w w when I got here. So, you know, I, I made the mistake many people do, and that was mistaking Bitcoin as a purely a payments technology. And it is, but it's much more than that, as, as we all know. But at the time, you know, I'd been moving around the world and made a couple of major moves. And that involved also having to move assets. And, you know, you know what a joy it is moving money across borders. And it was just very, a very frustrating, slow and expensive experience. So when someone tells you that there is now a technology that enables you to send money as easy as email, it's permissionless, it's borderless, you know, the actual technology doesn't reside in any one jurisdiction, it was, it sounded really appealing. So, you know, I, I, I didn't grok Bitcoin from day one, but I definitely found that that part of it very interesting. And luckily enough, you know, over time, I had very smart people guide me in a productive direction uh, <laughs> because, you know, a lot of people hear about Bitcoin and then get dragged in different directions or believe they found something superior and it takes them a while to kind of course correct. So, you know, it's it's definitely not me. I was just very lucky to be in the right place at the right time and had much smarter people around me acting as, you know, the the bumper bars on the bowling alley, if you will. Yes. It's, uh, well, one of the things I think when I think of you and you you were sort of, it just epitomizes in, in the way that you kind of responded there was uh, the humility because within this space, we've got people ranging from the bombastic and, you know, hyperbolic to sort of the understated, very, uh, you know, sort of softly spoken, but articulate folks. And I think you fall into that latter category. And I think you don't give yourself necessarily enough credit there, Neil, because the way this book <laughs> is written there, man, it's... um. It's exceptional. It's like, it's very clear you've done all your work. And something else you said that just res resonated with me, like in a massive way was, I was very blessed, perhaps like you, not to get sort of veered off 
by you know all the sort of um, crypto shiny lights because I had all these incredibly smart people who did a ton of work before me. So all I had to do was look at the Parker Lewis's and VJ Boyopardis and the Lynn Aldens and I was like, okay, I think I think I understand this thing and yeah, that other stuff's noise. So that's fascinating. Yeah, Perhaps, but that's um, a good Dale. Dale, you got to yes. you got to give yourself credit there, right? <laughs> because it takes a huge amount of discipline to do the work to like read what sometimes could be considered dry and boring versus you know all the hyperbolic stuff yes. that gets put out there yes yeah so yeah pat yourself on the back there you know <laughs> well thank you yes and I, I also say that i had the gift of time not everybody does um i happened to be at a point in my life where there was just i had ample opportunity and that was the most beautiful thing because i truthfully don't think i would have found bitcoin or at least had that conviction that i do i might have allocated a tiny portion but certainly not the extent that I have today. And it's just because I had time and many people don't have time. And that's the, that's the difficult thing with Bitcoin, isn't it? When you've got this incredibly complex asset that sort of touches on so many things, you know, from energy and game theory, psychology, economics, all these different things, technology, it's, it's tricky and it takes time. And, um, you know, obviously you put in the time, I put in the time. And in my case, I just happen to have the time, fortunately, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a very fortunate to be at a point in life where you do have the time because so I make a lot of infographics and illustrations. That's how I kind of thought I would contribute to the Bitcoin educational canon. Yes, I, I recognized meetups are a huge part of how Bitcoin gets adopted or communicated and people giving speeches or presentations don't always have the resources. So I was just putting online the resources I was making for my own talks and other people were finding that useful. Anyway, long story short, one of them that I made was basically just about 30, maybe 40 different traps people commonly fall into with Bitcoin in terms of how they misidentify it or believe something that is just provably wrong about Bitcoin. And I think a lot of people get tripped up on thinking Bitcoin is only for very intelligent people. When I think Bitcoin is really just for very humble people, because if you're willing to sit there and go down each of those roads and basically cross them off, you know, the list of potential ways Bitcoin could fail or false narratives you might have heard, well, then it's just a process of elimination, you know? Absolutely. Um, yes. Yeah. And and the one of the, one of the, I guess, one of the things you kind of speak about in the book was the sort of uh, the category error. And I've encountered this, you know, endlessly over the last little while talking to normies on holiday. And they just seem to think that Bitcoin is some sort of, you know, tech stock. It's just another one of those. It, there's nothing particularly unique or special about it. But, you know, the, the reality, as we know, is that it's just an entirely different beast unto its own. And that's where, and that's just one of a plethora of, what what was the term there? Sorry, I, I can't think of it right now. Um, heuristics or... Um, yeah, it, uh, mental models. Or, there we uh, go. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. That people, yeah. errors that people make um, when trying to assess Bitcoin. I guess before we go down that path, because I've got a couple specific ones that I found really interesting. Let's talk about perhaps some of those more topical things of the day, because I guess since you've written the book, we've now got an ETF. And when I look at, oh, 11 ETFs to be more accurate. And when I look at sort of now, um, I guess the new cohort of um, investors going forward, it looks like these are going to be the kinds of people that don't care that much about 
censorship resistance. They don't care about all the other qualities that Bitcoin has. They just care about number go up. So I'd love to get your thoughts. I haven't heard you speak publicly about um, your thoughts on the ETFs and what that actually means for the network going forward. Yeah, that's a good question. Haven't been asked it before. I would have to default to people smarter than me. I just don't fully, uh, I'm not an expert on the mechanics of all the different kinds of ETFs out there and how they vary in terms of fees or structure or custodians. But at the end of the day, all I care about is can I protect my own purchasing power by holding a non-dilutive asset that even if there are ETFs or other financial products out there, it doesn't affect my purchasing power or me saving in that vehicle, if that makes sense. That they can yes. be ETFs, but can they change the rules of the protocol? Well, you know, not according to the software I run on my node. So I, I'm, I'm not really sure what impact it'll have. Uh, certainly it is great for now having the marketing machine of all these giant financial institutions kind of on, on side of they're going to push Bitcoin as something that is useful in protecting purchasing power over time. And hopefully people, even if they are customers of ETF products over time, choose to and have the opportunity to self-custody in the future. So I, I honestly have no idea what it's going to do. It clearly unlocks a huge amount of capital that previously just couldn't access Bitcoin in a, in a self-custodial way. It just isn't in you know the mandate of a hedge fund to mm. do that. But uh, I think overall, it, it's, it's a positive thing in terms of education. Yeah. The interesting thing as you're describing that is, yeah, the marketing piece. It just is a sort of, when you've got Larry Fink and the likes, and I wouldn't necessarily take what he says at face value, but you know, when they when you've got Larry Fink saying it's a flight to quality, or when you've got BlackRock Fidelity and all these institutions effectively endorsing Bitcoin by having a product. Um, so that's almost what you would call positive marketing. And then you'd have all these instances of um, you know, where where, you know, you'd say, Oh, it's it's doing this, it's doing that, all this negative press that only serves to reinforce the value proposition of Bitcoin in the first place, which goes to something that you mentioned in the book, anti-fragility. The more and more FUD and nonsense they chuck at Bitcoin, the more robust it becomes because it actually just proves the actual value proposition in the first place. I wonder though, from my perspective, whether or not the ETFs over time will undermine one of the value propositions, which is like holding your own money. And mm. if they swallow enough capital and the rules are such that you aren't able to take self-custody, does that does that threaten something that was really important, at least to all the early adopters? And that's just one of the things that I've kind of mulling over. But of course, the the marketing, the number yeah. go up is pleasant. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, fortunately, in market dynamics, the more they bid into the price, Bitcoin's a very liquid asset. But for the amount of demand that currently is being bid into Bitcoin, it's fairly illiquid in that people who have held through multiple cycles are very unwilling to realize a profit at this point in time. Mm. You know, I mean, it's gotten to a point where I feel like I know enough Bitcoiners who can now see the road clear enough ahead and are also building products to get there that they almost view Bitcoin as, say, commercial real estate in that they believe it will have a period of being uh, so pristine as collateral that they'll never have to sell it. 
they will never pay tax on it. They will simply borrow depreciating fiat against it for as long as fiat continues to exist. So once that strategy becomes more obvious and once enough products exist to serve that purpose, why would someone sell their Bitcoin? Yes. You know, a lot can happen before that. But uh, yeah, I kind of see that as the end game. I think that's something that we talk about a lot. One of the chaps I talk to fairly often here in Australia, um, Sir William of Rotherham, you might have encountered him on Twitter. There's there's sort of two approaches to this. The, the one is to say, build up your stack to a sufficient point. And obviously this can't really happen if you've got sort of a really baby stack. But if you've got a pretty sizable stack, there will be a point of you being able to go, look, I can map out my expenditure for the next four years, sell that amount of Bitcoin, stick that in an interest-bearing account. Yes, it's melting fiat, blah, 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 right? But four years from now, five years from now, it's pretty likely that we'll see potentially a double, you know, your, your Bitcoin capital position, if you like, will have doubled. And so many people are also talking here about this idea of, well, being able to live off your Bitcoin forever Sure, there's going to be capital gains events and all that jazz along the way, but that's one approach. And then there's the other approach that you describe, which for me is more appealing because you get to keep your corn. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and, and then you're not sort of incurring necessarily a capital gains tax event. But I just wonder when those products are going to be ready for mainstream. I mean, if you, yeah. Yeah, have you have you got any sort of sense if you were to try and, you know, I know it's a hard thing to say, but have you got yeah, an idea yeah. of how soon this could be? Again, yeah, I don't have any secret information. I do know of a company testing out something along these lines in the US. So who knows if they get the approvals they need that that goes live. That'll be an interesting experiment to witness. But something else I think is worth mentioning is, you know, stacking Bitcoin is great if you have the excess savings to do so. But I think we also missed the picture or sorry, the other sort of half of the equation that is, I guess it usually caters to younger people, but it could, could apply to, to, to many more, is if you don't have excess savings, you know, even if you are in fiat debt and just the prospect of even stacking any amount of Bitcoin is just infeasible or seems impossible right now, at least educating yourself about Bitcoin gives you a huge advantage relative to, to everyone else because you're then going to be incentivized to develop very specialized or in-demand skills and you'll also have the willingness to accept payment in Bitcoin, which is also the other really important thing. So, you know, you, you, you don't necessarily need to accrue wealth by simply accumulating Bitcoin now, as long as, you know, you're going to be a useful value creator in the future, which I don't think everyone wants to do. You know, in a fiat society, a lot of people are very uh, disheartened, uh, disillusioned, demotivated. You know, if you're able to still be very motivated and highly productive because your intention is to stack Bitcoin or be compensated in Bitcoin. I think that's going to be a very interesting angle. So I hope people don't lose hope thinking, you know, they've missed the boat because they just don't have the fiat to buy Bitcoin with today. Absolutely. That's a, that's actually a great point. And um, yeah, ha having just come back from South Africa, I mean, it's unfortunately all too real. The, the, the reality that you just, the average person's just, not in a position to be able to stack. Um, I guess the real question would be is what's going to incentivize them to put in the 
100 hours, let's say, if that's what Sailor suggests, at the right level, because I think to an extent, one needs to be a quite financially literate or, you know, relatively well read across a number of different areas, perhaps, maybe you disagree. But yeah, yeah I th- I, what, what do you think would drive that incentive, I think, to get people to to care enough? Yeah, I guess it just come, it comes down to money. You know, everyone wants to save in the hardest money. I have family in India and uh, would visit there when I was a kid. And gold is very coveted in India. Very low levels of financial literacy, very low levels of just literacy in general. This is when I was a kid. Obviously, things have changed now. Mm. But everyone understood the implicit value of gold, mainly because it was outside of government debasement potential. And also it was usually worn as jewelry because it was like on your person, you know, you were custodying it at the same time. So yeah, I, I think I would disagree. I think the incentive is, you know, what what's going to protect your value of time. If you're earning in pieces of paper and the cost of food keeps going up and up when everything else is, has not changed. Yeah. You, you're going to be asking questions. Are there alternatives? Mm. So um, I, I think, Bitcoin's price is its marketing department in a way because yeah, it just forces you to ask those questions. Why is that going up relative to this piece of paper? Indeed. And uh, hopefully at that point, you can wade through all the uh, naysayers as the, um, as the sort of central bankers and the, and the governments who have an interest, I guess, in not necessarily endorsing Bitcoin per se. Um, because it will expose their the fiat Ponzi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And why is it necessarily the case that everything gets more expensive? Does it have to get more expensive? I guess that ne- that leads neatly to like another question that I was hoping to touch on in this conversation. So you speak in your book about Gresham's Law, and then I'd love you to talk about Gresham's Law and then how you see that in relation to circular economies. Because you know, I, you know, having just said what I said in relation to there's a lot of people in South Africa, just where I'm from, who just don't have money to pay the bills, you know, period. And so yeah. to have yeah. them being exposed to the volatility of Bitcoin in some ways is irresponsible. You know, dare I say I'd be happier uh, if they were to just adopt Tether in many ways. It would serve their mm-hmm. daily yeah. needs better. Yeah, perhaps talk to us a little bit about circular sure. economies and Gresham's law and how you see that all sort of working. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on Gresham's law, but like my base understanding is, you know, it, it it's in relation to commodity money. So two different commodity monies circulating at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the direct quote from Gresham, it gets misquoted a lot. But the direct quote is good and bad coin cannot circulate together. And basically what Gresham's law is concerned with is the face value of money. So if I have a copper coin and a silver coin, and I stamp both those coins, the same weight, same size, same dimensions, and they are stamped with the same face value. And I tell you, these are worth the same. The market will very quickly figure out that that's BS. (laughs) You know, and people will start hoarding the more valuable commodity money. And I think the same thing applies now. You know, if you're in Argentina, people will take your dollars over your pesos they just will because they know so when it comes to circular economies and you see a lot of bitcoiners creating products and services for other bitcoiners because they want to accept bitcoin as payment um it's because they've kind of figured out gresham's law they they know that bitcoin circulating with other inferior monies it, they only want to accept bitcoin then that they're if, if that's 
available to them. They will mm. prefer to take Bitcoin um, rather than anything else. So, yeah, I mean, hard money does that. It forces its preference on the market, you know, and over time, more and more people accept it. It becomes more and more liquid. It, it's just this like self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. And yeah, I mean, Gresham's Law was written at a time when we were talking about metallic forms of money, you know, gold, silk, copper, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it does apply to, to to Bitcoin and fiat loosely, just yeah. in terms of thinking it as an A-B test. Yes. And if there's a way for you to look at fiat, whether it's you know US dollars or pesos as your sort of checking account, and then Bitcoin as your savings account, and you have the ability to, let's say, receive Bitcoin, so you you know you know for your goods and services or whatever whatever you might be doing and then you can swap those into a better fiat currency that you can then keep for short to medium term savings that seems like a really yeah. good solution and it's something i saw recently with Jan3 Samson Mao's company they've got a new product called the Aqua Wallet and mm -hmm. it enables these swaps automatically and i thought that was really powerful for Africa yeah. and, you know, I guess the developing world all over, because to me, that seems quite valuable. You know, since I've moved to Australia and that was only six years ago, the South African Rand is depreciated from about 1090, no, sorry, 990 Rand to the dollar to now 12 Rand 57. So it's like a 30 right. percent yeah. over six years. You know, yep. it, might not say, it might not be like an Argentina, but if you're yeah, in South Africa, it's noticeable. It's noticeable. Absolutely. And when I go yeah. back there, it's not cheap. And I'm yeah. like, how do people survive? So yeah, that makes sense. One of the other things you talk about, and it's not really related to Gresham law, but it's sort of, it's related to money is the Cantillion effect. And this is something that I think that Bitcoiners do themselves a disservice by throwing out the term money printing willy nilly as if they understand all the intricacies. And then when probed, <laughs> maybe I've done this, frankly, <laughs> when yeah. probed, it's like, okay, um, it's QE, um, you know, it's, they can, you know, yeah. whoever's closest to the money's figured, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You give some, you give an example in the book of sort of yeah. how that might relate to, I guess, today's world and why we might see some disillusionment amongst the population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, just talk to us a little bit about um, the Cantillion effect and the easiest way that you would explain it to, you know, I use yeah. the term normie as being anyone who doesn't really pay attention to Bitcoin. Yeah, for sure. It's I think the example I used in the book because Richard Cantillon, you kind of wrote it during an era of, you know, again, under a, not a gold standard, but a biometallic standard. So gold and silver, we use this money. And you can kind of think of, um, imagine you're running an economy based on silver. All of a sudden, ships return from South America full of boatloads of silver that have just been freshly mined. Well, the people who have that silver, they get to make choices before anyone else has felt the effects of those choices. So they could go and buy all of the scarce assets available to them at the time and sort of inject all that silver into the economy. And what is going to happen when they do that? Let's let's say they literally double the amount of silver in the economy, uh, and they identify all the scarce resources in that economy, and then that's where they they inject or purchase um, with with that silver that they've just mined. Well, it's going to inflate the prices massively, and by the time that's become obvious, everyone else you just won't see it happening. 
you know, it, 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 it's very non-obvious. It's, it's, um, it's, it's very subtle, but it affects everyone. And so if you kind of think today, a commercial bank has the ability to create money, you know, outside of central banking. So let's just keep a very basic example. Someone going to get a mortgage. And I mm -hmm. think Saifedean uses this example in the fiat standard. That bank, let's say the house costs a million bucks. Someone's borrowing 500,000, half of it. That bank is then going to create $500,000, which has now increased the money supply. That person is going to use that $500,000 and give it to the seller of the house. The seller of the house can then spend that $500,000 into the economy and everyone's none the wiser. But that person gets to make choices before the inflationary effects of adding that $500,000 into the economy has happened. So all you kind of have to really think about when you think of the Cantillon effect is who has an unfair advantage in terms of being able to make decisions and direct capital before everyone else understands what's going on. I'm, I'm trying to think if there's a, a, a simpler way to explain it, but in reality, imagine if you could see that things were very underpriced. No, I, I, I won't do that. I'll leave it at that. You know, a good example of what you're talking about, basically, if I go back to sort of um, during COVID, and this didn't really happen here, but um, you had BlackRock buying up multifamily homes, and they were able to get effectively 0% interest rates because they've got so much capital and they've got so many assets under management and blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, the net effect is that every house in you know, every desirable area just shot through the roof. And yeah, the, the best example I use is always housing here because Australians use housing as a savings vehicle, a monetary, it's got a massive monetary premium, which you mentioned in the book. Um, and uh, hopefully Bitcoin can suck some of that away in time. But, um, it, you know, when you've got a world where interest rates are one or 2%, why bother saving, you know, and you've got inflation that's running hot. And if you've got assets, why why wouldn't you just go and borrow against it and buy more property? And so we saw property prices rise by like 40% here or 45% in Brisbane, you know, sort of um, bottom to the top. And um, I believe Canada's pretty similar. It's got a similar dynamic um, to uh, Australia as well as New Zealand. You know, the economy uh, or people's wealth is yeah. very much tied up in their primary residence. So I sort of... Um, I go, I go on and on about real estate quite often here, uh, even though I'm trained in real yep. estate and all that jazz. But to me, it's the most obvious manifestation of the Cantillion effect because if you're an asset owner, you just got a whole lot richer. And the poor pleb who was diligently saving for their first property, it's now 40% more expensive and they had nothing to do with it. So yeah, I think that's the, yeah. that's the unfairness in your intent. Yeah, yeah. It's really just what is outside of your control and, you know, if you're using a money that someone else can create at will, but you cannot, then you're always going to be subject to their, the whims of their decisions or just market cycles. So I think that's a big appeal to me of Bitcoin is just being able to exit that whole problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. So that sort of leads to the, the monetary premium idea that I was talking about earlier, because... It's this is not a concept in mainstream uh, economics that people talk about yeah. very much. Um, uh, you know, certain things having value, you know, above utility. So perhaps just talk to 
that particular point um when people are talking about something having a monetary premium well, what does that actually mean and, and and i guess how does that relate to bitcoin yeah well if we go back to the Kantian effect example when you kind of think of money being introduced into an economy new units of money and if you are someone trying to take advantage of the market where would you inject that new money to get the most benefit for yourself and what you would do because money itself fiat money fails to hold its value over time by design you're going to put it into things that preserve your value the best you can with the mm. um, choices you have available to you housing has previously and I, you know i used to live in australia now i live in canada so i say previously because for a lot of people it's become just not a possibility housing was something that was available to the most number of people because the most number of people had access to mortgages so many people like you said would use housing or real estate as their savings account because if they had saved in fiat housing just kept getting further and further away from them so anything that continues to get further and further away from you relative to your monetary unit is likely accruing a monetary premium and that is people are using it as a store of value because the money itself is broken and not doing its job so you know you can look around it could be fancy watches bottles of wine you know you look at the art world so things that appreciate in value disproportionately when new units of money are introduced into an economy usually that's a sign that they are attracting a monetary premium and you know that the, the hope with bitcoin is that bitcoin is such a superior money because it is purely monetary premium it doesn't really have you know it, it it's it's useful but you you kind of think of it as drinking the milkshake or sucking that monetary premium out of other assets just because bitcoin's a preferable place to store value you know whether it's to do with uh, its transferability censorship resistance um maybe it's more liquid so yeah you know be careful what you save in is really the lesson yeah yeah and i don't know if this is something you mentioned in the book or something i've read recently too where once we've crossed crossed over like a threshold where something is like widely recognized as being a better technology and there's no one's going backwards so like it wasn't as if like yeah. we got the car and then some people were like well let's just you know hop on horses sometimes like it just didn't happen that way like once we found something much better yeah. so you wonder like at what point bitcoin crosses that threshold you know and starts materially draining capital from you know the 900 trillion dollar global asset market particularly when you think that there's a lot of negative yielding bonds well real in real terms mm. i guess okay. you think to yourself i'm struggling to see the value proposition of holding government debt that's lower than the you know that gives me a coupon rate lower than inflation rate i mean I, it's 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 like a uh, a return free risk as it were yes yeah <laughs> because greg, greg yeah. foster said you know what i mean <laughs> well you've hit hit the nail on the head in terms of the process that a lot of bitcoin maximalists have gone through and that is it's not ideological it's just a process of elimination you know they've gone through real estate they've gone through bonds they've looked at every other potential i guess investment or savings vehicle whatever you want to call it and they've looked at the opportunity cost uh, and bitcoin has just been the best choice from an engineering perspective so with the least risk mm. 
so yeah it's unfortunate that people's time has to be spent doing that activity because you know in an ideal world or a, under a sound money standard money just performs that task exactly. um, yeah it's funny because i had a i had a long chat with my my uncle recently he was down and uh he he was saying okay you know maybe i'll get on board you know bitcoin but why why does it have to be such a big percentage do you know what i mean like what what's wrong with stocks and even my even my father-in-law is like i you know don't you think that the average person should just be putting the money in the S&P 500? And um, I think my response was along the lines of like, yeah, I, if you don't know what Bitcoin is, and you, I don't think you should be investing much in it because you're going to have a heart attack when it goes through its inevitable mm -hmm. declines because it's yep. horrible. If you're not equipped to be able to handle the volatility, you'll be shaken out and you'll probably be scared to get back in the water. You know, And that's why people are going study Bitcoin, not just buy Bitcoin because yeah. it's not really that constructive in the bigger picture yes yes you know when we're talking about that monetary premium being drained from all these other things that perhaps don't have as much utility whose value proposition isn't isn't as compelling it's not as scarce all those types of things and let's imagine there's 900 trillion today maybe it's more maybe it's less what do you like if you were to put a number on it like how big do you think bitcoin's total total addressable market could be i mean I, I yeah. throw out a hundred, Anil, because I just like the number, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's got any validity in yeah. reality. Yeah, I don't have a clue. <laughs> but what I do know, and a really helpful exercise to go through, is think about all the different pies out there. The, the, the line I like to use is Bitcoin takes many slices from many different pies. So you could just look at the products and services that are out there now. So, you know, think of um, the credit card uh, fold, basically, you know, earning rewards in Bitcoin. So that's a huge business in itself, credit card rewards points. At a certain point, any reasonable person will prefer to have Bitcoin than some loyalty point or air mile or whatever. You know, at some point it becomes too compelling not to do that. And you think about life insurance. Okay, do you want a life insurance policy that pays you a fixed fiat amount 40 years from now? Or do you want one that pays you a fixed Bitcoin amount 40 years from now? Which do you think is going to preserve your purchasing power better or you know, take care of your family better should you pass away? And there's just all these really interesting use cases that Bitcoin is only just starting to penetrate. And you know, you kind of think of the road or journey that Amazon has been on, and you look at, you know, what? 15, 18 years down the road, AWS just becomes this massive beast in terms of the uh, revenue it provides to Amazon company. So I just think many of the use cases or the like dominant use cases of Bitcoin are yet to be fully understood or even realized. So I think Bitcoin will just penetrate all these different markets in very interesting ways. And it'll be very difficult to predict what's kind of going to really pour fuel on the fire. So. That's why I wanted you to come on the show, Neil, because you're measured <laughs> and sensible because I, I, I veer on the side of yeah. hyperbolic from time to time because, yeah, I mean, I did not even think about the fold side of things like who wants your petty uh, airline miles? Do you know what I mean? And absolutely, I knew there was something with insurance and Bitcoin because I always thought like, I mean, even if these insurance um, funds decided to put like half a percent or a percent of their assets into Bitcoin, what that could actually do 
to their ability to be mm. able to, you know, make payouts and whatever it might be in the future. I mean, yeah. there's just so many things, as you say, that are just unknown. Um, I often talk to people as well, like about, look at all these intermediaries involved in making payments. Like, you know, when to go watch the fights on the weekend and, you you know, because labor's so expensive, you've got to scan a QR code. Then you've got to have some stupid app that just is another bloody middleman. And you got to like, oh, yeah. who are you? Oh, you want all my information? You know, okay. You know, put in some nonsense name. And then they clip the ticket. Visa's clipping the ticket. Like, you know, yeah. and then the bank's involved. There's probably like four parties in this transaction. It's like, are you joking? This could easily be done via lightning. You know, we don't need this nonsense. So, yeah, I, 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 maybe I should actually be more measured. I think I'll take that out of this conversation. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you need the balance, right? You yeah. need the balance. Yeah, um, absolutely. Maybe like if um, sort of Max Kaiser and uh, and you sort of had a baby, <laughs> then that'd be the perfect Bitcoin. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. Okay. Sorry, I've detoured things a little bit. Um, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so one of the things, and, and this is me just jumping around a little bit because there was something yeah, go for book that I, I really enjoyed. One of the things I hear from people, and this was again on my travels recently, it's not backed by anything. Bitcoin's not backed by anything, as if fiat is. So, you know, what is your response to that typical question when people ask you? Because it's pretty common. Yeah, I got to, basically, anytime someone asks me any question about Bitcoin, I think in you know, in my head, who am I going to channel right now? Who yeah. who am I drawing on? Because that's where I learned it from. And for, you know, Bitcoin, what is it backed by? I kind of just think of Parker Lewis because he wrote a great essay, great essay called Bitcoin is not backed by anything. And, you know, his, I, I, got, I was fortunate to work editing a book that he actually just put out called Gradually Then Suddenly. If you haven't read it, if you're new to Bitcoin, I really recommend going and reading this book because it just takes down every main roadblock you might have in understanding bitcoin uh, it does it in a beautiful way very easy to under understand and just these arguments that you can't fault the logic and when it comes to bitcoin what is it backed by he often talks about well it's it's not backed by anything it's just superior monetary technology it just has these properties that are more inherently useful and that's why people use it it's like a you know think of a hammer it's like no what is a hammer backed by and i know it's not money but it's it's just a useful tool to serve a purpose or a problem that, that you might have and so i think it's just a, a, people get caught up on that question of what is it backed by but if if that actually mattered no one would be using it no one would be holding it they do it because it has superior monetary properties relative to all other choices that's mm. that's all any you know money needs or or survives on so, um, yeah, you know, if, if someone's asking you that question, they don't understand money themselves. So you could probably yeah. disregard most of what they, they say. Yeah, no, that is true. Because you actually say like, well, actually, did you know that the money in your bank's not actually in your bank and mm. it's not actually yours? Uh, because if you try to draw $10,000 or more in cash, they'll go, hey, what are you doing? Are you buying drugs yeah. or something? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, Back, backing is an interesting like concept. It's useful to understand in like monetary history how we went from gold as money to paper as money. Like yeah. clearly, you know, at one point paper was 
was backed by gold or, or freely redeemable in gold. But anytime you have a piece of paper or some form of currency that is backed by an asset or a commodity, there's going to be counterparty risk in that because you need to be sure that your you know, IOU or token is going to get what is backing that token. So, yeah. And it's it seems to be quite obvious that the I mean maybe it's not well perhaps I'm going to misspeak here but Bitcoin would be the best thing that governments could do to back their fiat currencies because it's totally auditable. Do you know what I mean? You can go like, hey, we got ten thousand Bitcoin, have a squiz there. Perhaps you could have like real estate. Maybe they got like a real estate portfolio, and you'd be like, yeah, have a look at the buildings. But it's not as if like the finances are very clear in the sense that like it might just be sort of geared to the top, you know, like maybe you only own like 10% equity in that property and it's like you got a horrific interest rates or something. So it's it strikes me that there's not many things the government can do to back their currency with anything that doesn't necessarily require trust. And then, you know, they always yeah. break that trust invariably. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem. Once Bitcoin existed, it doesn't matter what a government does, even with Bitcoin, no one's going to choose a currency backed by Bitcoin if they have access to Bitcoin itself. So, yes. yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if that's the, the strategy that'll be useful to governments. It, it might if they're just hoping to take or, or continue to debase people's savings, because if I'm a government and I hold you know 10,000 Bitcoin and I issue currency that's backed by it, there's nothing to stop me. From, from rug pulling yeah like like you said you know trade trust in government is pretty low right now yeah so i think the strategy that maybe seems to be working the best is if you look at el salvador and it's just you, you look at the price of the government bonds issued mm. by the el salvadorian government versus other very maybe highly rated um, western governments and you have to ask okay what's the difference there you know what what strategies are they employing that 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 make the El Salvadorian bonds far superior and lower risk to to all our other options. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and there was no there was no like apology by all the naysayers from the outset. You know, when when El, Sal El Salvador embarked on their on their sort of um, on their bonds program, there was a lot of like naysayers, and I just remember all the headlines. Yeah. And then there was a headline that came out at some point. Oh, they're the best performing bonds. Uh, you know, I think was it in twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four, something like that. And it's just like. Uh, no, 2022 rather, or 2023. And yeah, no, it's, it's um, it seems pretty obvious. And and yeah, that's actually a good point. Like, you know, governments aren't necessarily going to back their currency with Bitcoin. And the reality is it's not as if like uh, they could easily just rug pull, as you say. They could just, the the leaders could just have it in a two or three multi-sig and then bugger off to Dubai and um, never to be seen again. Yeah. They can print a lot of money. And yeah, that's what they would do if they were South African uh politicians but anyway that's a separate right. matter <laughs> um uh wanted to chat about a couple other concepts um a intransigent minority this is something you talk about in the book and relates to how change occurs so let me hand over to you on that one because i i love this concept yeah this was taken from um the book the sovereign individual so if you have a chance to read it it's a you know a heavy read but but well worth it in terms of predicting or providing a, a really helpful guide of how the future might play out based on, it was, it was written in, in the late nineties based on how technology was developing. You could kind of understand what might happen and what might the incentives be in the future. And the intransigent minority kind of looks at 
with any technology, there are usually, and, and you know, you can probably just think of a few examples in your own life where a small group adopted that technology wholeheartedly and would be very unwilling to then either go backwards or look at other options. They found something that served a, a specific purpose for them perfectly and they were not going to change. And that was all they were going to accept. Well, the same thing applies to money as well. As you know, you probably know, once someone understands Bitcoin and has the ability to accept Bitcoin in payment or convert any fiat they receive into Bitcoin, you know, they're, they're not going to save in rubles or yen um, or anything else. And this has this spreading effect because some people will accept everything and some people will accept just one thing in everything. So the, the group that maybe doesn't really have a preference or is you know, just happy with anything, that intransigent minority who are unwilling to change um, or unwilling to accept fiat, they force their preference on the rest of the group slowly over time. Yeah, I, I feel like we're genuinely seeing that play out now. So it's, 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 again, it's very inconspicuous. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a sl slow process, but yeah, it, it's, I think it's very clearly happening from my perspective. An example that I've read about elsewhere or heard about elsewhere, and perhaps someone will correct me, but one example, and it's got nothing to do with money is apparently all beef in the UK is halal because, um, even if Muslims make up a relatively small proportion of the population as a whole, it's obviously really important to them. The rest of the population are perhaps indifferent um, to an extent. And so meat would be halal. And so, yeah, it's, it's such an interesting concept and it's really encouraging to know that it's not, it's never really like we need 51% of people and then we've got mm, it. It's like mm -hmm. maybe 5% yeah. of people who just are going like, no, we will not yield. Yep. This is what we want. And, that's how yeah. change happens. That's probably how revolutions yeah. happened. Uh, you know, not that we're advocating violence, but that's this is an economic peaceful revolution. Yes, and that's it. It just comes back to economics. It's like it just sound business decisions. If Coca Cola, if the Coca Cola company understands this concept, you can damn well bet that it's in their interest to do so. You know, yeah. why wouldn't you serve the largest population if there's no friction or additional cost involved? So, Sense. yeah, it's, it's a very interesting thing to understand. Next one. I love this one. This rings so true uh, for those who, who have been around the, the block a little bit with Bitcoin. The uh, Gelman amnesia effect. Uh, talk to us about that one. Is it Gelman or Gelman? I think it's Gelman. So there's a physicist called Murray Gelman. Yes. Um, it's, it's not actually, uh, it was actually written by, uh, the author director Michael Crichton. He actually came up with this term. Yeah, and um, it, it, I, I'll gloss over the actual story of how it how it came to be. But the the basic concept is any time you read a story in the mainstream media, let's say you really understand, uh, let's say rugby, and you read a story in the Guardian that is talking about rugby. And you can very clearly identify errors, basic errors, things that are just factually untrue that you know because you're an expert in rugby. Well, now you're going to look at everything else The Guardian has published with a different lens because you don't know what is and isn't true, um, especially in areas where you have no particular expertise, let's say I don't know, archery. So it's just a helpful tool 
for filtering out your information diet, especially with large publications where there are many different people writing to say under one banner. And, you know, you see it all the time with Bitcoin because there's just been so much factually incorrect, negative slanted stories about Bitcoin. And it makes sense that that gets the clicks. You know, Bitcoin was the perfect villain for a very long time, but it also did us a great favor in being able to very quickly say, okay, no, I'm, do I'm done with, you know, Bloomberg or I'm done with Fortune magazine. Hmm. And yeah, I, I know a lot of Bitcoiners now that just follow individual people and that's how they get their news or uh, long form research or whatever, because it kind of rests on the reputation of that individual. Um, and if that relationship's yeah. broken, okay, that's done. So yeah, it's just, it's just again, it, it's just helpful for tuning out the FUD as, as you kind of mentioned earlier. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. I'm, I'm sure every and anyone listening could actually, you know, resonate with that. Even if, I mean, if it's not Bitcoin, it could be on anything. But once you've seen errors, um, you know, committed by a particular publication, you start going, well, what else are they talking about? That's nonsense. So yeah, that yeah. makes that makes absolute sense. And Neil, I could chat to you for a long time, but let's. Um, I know this is late in your your uh, in your world, so I've got one more question for you. And um, I try and get all my guests to touch on this topic, uh, because yeah. I have this feeling that crypto is here to stay for a while, um, until such time as a lot of that tech has migrated across to Bitcoin, which you know could take time. And in the interim, there's going to be all sorts of narratives, exciting, uh, shiny stuff, and um, as we see this bull run happening, um, I've got originally I thought perhaps crypto wouldn't perform, but I'm actually losing a bit of hope in that regard. And I think that's going to be a whole new cohort of people. So if you're talking to ordinary people and just in terms of a mental model, how do you tend to distinguish it? Because I think the more ways that we can communicate the difference, not necessarily prescribing what people do with their money, then the better, you know, um, and then they can decide, invest in what the hell you want, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if there's a particular rule that's helpful for understanding that. Well, okay, firstly, let's talk about scams really quickly because, you know, you've, you've seen a lot of high-profile things blow up that were mm. very clearly fraudulent. And in, I want to say 2017, I gave this talk on scams and it was actually at a crypto conference because at that time, there weren't really many Bitcoin-only conferences. So I, I gave this talk on scams a bit tongue-in-cheek i'm not sure if that audience completely understood i was maybe directing some of that at them but basically okay so there was this woman called adele spitzer and she actually at one point in time was the richest woman in bavaria and she ran this scam she basically set up her own bank and took deposits promised interest and she started paying out interest with new depositors this was 50 years before Charles Ponzi. Wow. So she actually was the first person to pioneer the Ponzi scheme, although Charles Ponzi kind of gets all the credit and, you know, his name is now forever tarnished. But then, you know, what did we see in uh, 08? Bernie Madoff. Okay, what did we see with Luna and FTX? It, it's just the same core narrative is always going to repeat because it, like, touches on those key human emotions of, you know, greed, fear of missing out. And there's, there's this book called The Seven Great Narratives, I think. Um, and it kind of just breaks down how every major 
movie, TV show, novel kind of follows one of these seven different story structures. And scams are kind of one of those categories. And if you, you read this book and you kind of make that connection, it's like the rags to riches story. Mm. You start seeing it everywhere and you realize it's just the same story playing out in different contexts with a new group of people being preyed upon. But the hope that it's ever going to go away is just, it's just gone. You just recognize that this is going to be around forever. Um, all you can do is protect yourself, the ones you love. And if people are curious enough to ask, okay, be generous with your time. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's going to be around for a long time. Getting back to your point. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great story, by the way, because uh, yeah, they, they, when you look at movies and whatnot, like they always have these, it's like so predictable. And uh, I actually think I must have a look at that book. Um, but sorry, carry on yeah. now on the crypto. Um, yeah. Side. yeah. But no, you, you're, sorry, you're right, because I was watching, uh, this is a long time ago, I remember I was watching The Lion King with someone and, and their son, and he's like, well, you know, this is just a, a remake of Macbeth, right? And I was just like, so again it's just the same same thing over and over okay bitcoin not crypto there's kind of this ladder i guess of understanding that will get you there and you have to start at the base you know you can't start halfway up the ladder you have to take it step by step and the very first step is do you believe money is necessary in society and the reason that's important is because some people don't and then they're kind of going down the road of well we should live in a barter economy you know, maybe communism is an interesting idea. And, mm -hmm. and the way you take that first step is you look at the barter system and you look at someone trading apples for oranges and then you start adding in more um, items. And you realize that once you have six different unique items in an economy, well, now you have 15 different pricing relationships. This is going to get very confusing very fast because it's an exponential equation. You, mm -hmm. know, you have 500 items or now you have I think it's 125,000 different pricing relationships. Anyway, it's something crazy like that. Mm. So then you recognize, okay, we need some common thing in the medium, in the, in the middle of all these transactions. We need money because now we can all specialize. Um, it's very easy to conduct economic calculation. Okay, cool. You're on that first rung. Next, it's what is that thing in the middle going to be? Okay, what are we going to use as money? And then you're looking at what has money been over time? Why have we chosen those things? Was it the free market? Was it forced upon us by governments? Does money change over time? And I think most people will say, yes, clearly it has. Shells, gold, fiat, Bitcoin. Yeah, it, it, it evolves, basically. People are looking for a better and better version over time. Okay, well, do we use multiple forms of money concurrently? Does that make sense? Does it make sense to have gold, silver, copper, tungsten at once? Well, maybe, but as a savings vehicle, what do you want to store your wealth in? And most people will say, well, okay, gold. That has proven to be harder money over time. And if you look at, say, even the nearest competitor, silver, and you look at the silver to gold ratio over time, well, silver's just gotten more and more diluted in terms of gold purchasing power. Okay, so now the next rung is, do we converge on one money? And that being just the hardest money of all available options. And if you can keep going down this process, you realize that it is Bitcoin and not something else. 
because you have to make a concentrated bet. There's only going to be one digital money. It doesn't make sense for us all to walk around with a hundred different digital monies in our digital wallets and we're paying different people in different currencies. And don't worry, AI will take care of all the the, uh, foreign exchange. So, okay, we know we need money. We know money changes over time and we know it converges to one. Well, okay, now you kind of have to go down that technical road of, okay, why is it Bitcoin? And what is helpful to arrive at that conclusion is just looking at the history of different peer-to-peer versions of digital cash. And you, again, you kind of go back through the different things that were tried in the past with Bitgold, uh, Digicash, all these different technologies. This is way, you know, I'm not talking other different cryptocurrencies if anyone's listening. These are like previous attempts at creating digital scarcity. And then you recognize that Bitcoin solved that age-old computer science problem of creating a digital scarce unit and whatever managed to solve that problem was always going to become the singular digital money. Well, now you've just kind of cracked the code. You're you're not going to gamble your purchasing power with anything else because you understand how incredibly, insanely fortunate you are to arrive at Bitcoin in your lifetime during its monetization period. Yeah, you, you, you've got to climb that ladder and it gets more exciting with each step, but you have to start at the bottom. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So you're kind of reeling them in step by step. So asking them questions. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Because it's kind of one of the things I'm trying to do here is help people. Um, if I can just help a handful of people, if that's all I can do, just, you know, um, save in Bitcoin and, and stay away from all the other nonsense. Um, that's fine. But, you know, again, I'm a free market guy, do whatever you want with your money. But uh, if you've done the work, the rational conclusion is that there's no second best as uh Michael said it would say. Yeah, Anil, this has been uh, absolutely superb and uh, really enjoyed our conversation. Um, there's so many other things that I'd love to chat to you about, um, perhaps some other day. But yeah, really, really can't, can't recommend this book enough, The Bitcoin Handbook. It's good for folks actually, you know, who understand Bitcoin and will just sort of piece together new stuff that you hadn't thought of, but also really good for people who just want to kind of put their toes in and go, oh, you know, there's so many different aspects to it because there's, you, you you refer to all the heavy hitters, all the people that I think are highly credible that will just get them well in their way. Brilliant. I, I know you're not much of a self-promoter. Um, so did you, but did you want to like uh, let the audience know where they can find you or anything like that? Yeah. Um, he- head to my Twitter account. Uh, it's Anil said so. And I've got a link in my bio and I have a ton of free resources. You know, my, my book's even free in the digital version. Go and take those resources, especially if you are, helping loved ones understand Bitcoin or you're giving talks at your local meetup, go and take those resources. I hope they'll be useful to you. They're very uh, beginner friendly, easily digestible. I kind of keep everything as jargon free as I can. And other than that, I'm currently working on a book, a kind of compilation of a lot of Michael Saylor's wisdom because I know you just, you just brought him up then. Nice. So why, why not? Uh, which will hopefully be out by the end of the year. And uh, yeah, be at a few conferences this year. Otherwise, yeah, thanks for having me, Dale. This has been a blast. And hopefully we can uh, meet in person one day over a beer. Yep, I would love that. And uh, maybe you'll come to Australia's Bitcoin Alive conference one day because it's only getting bigger and better. Oh. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Saw some of the footage from last year. Very yeah. jealous that I can't be there this year. But yeah, fingers crossed for, for 2025. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much and all the best. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you got some value out of it. Either way, hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think. My handle is Dale21M. If you've got any suggestions as to people you think I should be talking to or topics I should address to, I would love that sort of feedback. Otherwise, if you want to support the show, there's a couple different ways you can do that. The first is just to share it amongst your friends and family. The more that people hear the message that Bitcoin and crypto are not the same thing, the better. And I want to help people understand that. The second thing you can do is give me a five-star review on whichever podcast app you're using. Of course, that's only if I deserve it. And last but not least, if you want to stream Satsmoe via the Fountain app, I'm not going to say no, but it's not expected. Thank you so much for your support thus far. It means the world to me. I appreciate the hell out of you and the best is yet to come. Much love, friends. I'll see you on the other side.